Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode Number 101, Alexandra Lahav, Chancy Causation. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Alexi Lahav. Alexi is the Ellen Ash Peters Professor of Law at the University of Connecticut School of Law. Alexi is a well-known fixture in civil procedure and complex litigation circles, and is author of the award-winning book, In Praise of Litigation. She teaches civil procedure, torts, complex lit, and professional responsibility. Our podcast today features Alexi's new article, Chancy Causation. In it, Alexi tackles a long-standing problem for those of us working at the intersection of torts and evidence what to do when causation is inherently, or at least for all practical purposes, probabilistic. Or perhaps even more difficult still, what do we do when the defendant has behaved badly in some way, but the plaintiff can't prove causation in a meaningful way? It's a problem that has captivated me, at least since law school, and bedeviled courts and scholars for at least half a century, if not more. Alexi looks at the issue with fresh eyes and asks whether our standard ideas about but-for factual causation are truly up to the task. Alexi, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. Let's begin with the title of your paper. What do you exactly mean by chancy causation? So I got the title because I've been reading a lot of metaphysical philosophy in the area of causation, and this is one of the terms they use, and philosophers tend to just have fabulous terms, and I thought this was one of them. And all it is is what we in law sometimes refer to as probabilistic causation. So that's the idea that the causal relationship between one thing and another is probabilistic, not deterministic. So to give an example, which is what I start the paper with, suppose that there's a toxin that's shown, epidemiologically shown to have a relationship with a certain cancer. We might not deterministically know that John's cancer was caused by his exposure to that toxin, but we can say that there's a probability that it was, and we can even name that probability. And that's what I mean by chancy causation. And just to be clear here, so the focus is on factual causation or somewhat probabilistic factual causation, where conventionally the law views the analysis as largely objective or mechanistic. Yeah, and not just that, but what I try to explain in the paper is that law views this type of factual causation as both scientific and deterministic. So the standard that we usually use is a but-for causation standard, which is a counterfactual. If John had not been exposed to this toxin, would he have gotten the cancer? And the problem is that that just doesn't fit with facts that are probabilistic. So the factual causation as we understand it in law 
doesn't really conceive, as it, at least as it's currently understood, doesn't really conceive of what you might call probabilistic facts, things that we know only conditionally or as a function of chance. Now, in your paper, you're also careful to separate out these chancy causation cases from other classic causation problems, some of the ones that I love from torts. Can you just briefly mention some of those so that we're clear about the problems that you are addressing and the ones that you're not? Yeah, so there are two main problems that people are interested in in torts traditionally. One is, we usually learn it in tort classes, the problem of the two fires. So a fire burns down the building, but then shortly thereafter, another fire ravages the same area. The building would have burned down even if the first fire had not occurred because of the second fire. So can the first fire be said to be a cause of the building having burned down? And that's an overdetermined cause problem. I'm not talking about that. There are some solutions to that in the law. The other one is the problem of cumulative causes. So suppose that I have a bad reaction, but it's caused because I was exposed to three different chemicals that working together resulted in the harm to me. Each one of them separately is not the cause of the harm because they needed the other ones in order to together cause that harm. We would still say each is a cause, although they're not the cause of the harm. So I'm distinguishing between that, I think it's called cumulative causation problem as well. Because again, we have solutions to that already in the law. Whereas I think we struggle a lot more with the problem of chancy causation. And I hope to get a chance in a few minutes to explain to you why it's of incredible importance. And really, there's a lot of money at stake in it too. Okay. So I'd like to first challenge, at least in part, this idea that chancy causation is a distinct category. And this is, of course, something that you talk about in the paper. So aren't many of these chancy causation instances just ones where the deterministic mechanism is just too difficult to prove? So for example, A exposes B to the coronavirus and B contracts COVID. You might say that this is only chancy causation because we can't tell whether B contracted it from A or, or from somewhere else. But there's also underlying all this arguably some deterministic cause that we just don't know what it is and we don't have enough information. Are these kinds of cases chancy cases? So I would say that is a chancy case, though. In the paper, I distinguish between epistemic problems of chancy causation. So that's the problem of, I don't know if I got COVID when I went to the restaurant or I got it when I went to the gym, right? That kind of thing. Uh, that comes up a lot in food poisoning situations as well. But I know that I got COVID because it has certain symptoms associated with it. And I know the mechanism by which the virus infects people. And so I know that somebody breathed on me and therefore I got it. But in situations, especially like cancer, we actually have a lot more problems of unknown etiology. And I don't think that science 
has been able, and I predict that it seems unlikely to me that we'll ever be able to show that kind of direct connection that we have with viral or bacterial infection. In situations like cancer, you really have a disease that can be caused by a variety of things, including just unknown etiology. You just get it and nobody knows why. And in those situations, I think of it as more metaphysical, that we cannot ever know. But whether you agree with me on the metaphysical point, as long as you're willing to accept that there's an epistemic problem that we just haven't yet found out, then we're sort of on the same page in terms of the chanciness of the proof. But I do think people are very attached to the idea that science will be able to uncover the to use scare quotes, true cause of something in that kind of direct and specific way that we've seen in the bacterial and viral context. And that really has to do with, I think, the excitement that people felt historically about the discovery of microbiology, basically, that we're able to identify specific causes of disease. But there really are many diseases and and harms where there is no such specific cause that science has been able to identify. And maybe as we get into genetics, we'll be able to identify it. But I'm just not bullish on that prospect. So I would characterize it as a metaphysical problem that's really fundamental to human existence. What happens if the determination is not impossible, or at least not beyond current understanding, but really expensive or difficult in many cases. So, for example, I think a bit about the smoking out rationale behind race ipsa as an example of this. So, patient goes in for knee surgery and comes out with neck pain, and nobody really knows what's going on. Is that chancy causation? Well, I need to know more about the story of, you know, what happened and what the thing that the patient is complaining of. Um, But in the classic case that I think you're thinking of, so I would characterize that as a form of chancy causation. And there is an issue that actually a friend of mine who commented on the paper raised, which is, is chancy causation the same when the chanciness is on the defendant side. So when I have multiple defendants and I don't know which of them has caused the injury, but it's clearly this event that is the surgery, which was the precipitating event of my harm, right? That's such sort of one type of chancy cause. And that's a multiple defendant type. And the standard solution to that, which hasn't been widely adopted, but is adopted by some courts as a kind of market share liability or a recipsa against the institution in the hospital setting. The other kind of chancy causation problem is the unknown plaintiff problem, which I talk a lot about in the paper. So that's a different problem, which is I circulate a toxin. Some proportion of the population will be harmed by it, but not everybody who's exposed to it will be harmed. How do I allocate blame and damages in that situation? And law and economics has... A solution, also a standard solution to that problem, which has not been adopted as far as I can tell anywhere as part of the formal law. But that second problem, the what you might call the unknown victim, is the problem I'm most concerned with. But I think that the two problems are really of the same type. So the unknown defendant and the, the unknown victim strike me as just two sides of the same coin. It's very interesting because 
I think I agree with you that these are very much related, and yet the law seems to have figured out the problem of multiple defendants or even the cases where you need to use circumstantial evidence to make certain assumptions. But then it doesn't do well when you have the unknown plaintiff problem, or at least the current but-for causation standard doesn't allow us to access those cases. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's just not built for that. It's really built for a world in which harms come very close in time to injury, so they're acute, and in which the types of causal questions are pretty simple. So a car accident or maybe even an injury in a surgery like you were describing. And it's just not meant for the more complex world that we live in today. And, you know, I have some thoughts about why we might have gone in this direction, but it's not a good fit to the facts in the world. And that's why I got so interested in it, because I thought, wow, this but-for causation standard It just can't be proven. There is no evidence that will prove deterministic causation when the problem is probabilistic. And so that lack of fit is what got me interested in, okay, how do we rethink this area? Tell us more about that. In your paper, you argue, in fact, that things actually were not always this way, that the 19th century seemed to have a more pragmatic view of causation that was a bit more value-laden and less... I guess, scientific, as you use the term. Tell us more about it. Yeah, so there's a wonderful book, which if people listening haven't read, I I can't recommend enough, called The Taming of Chance by Ian Hacking. And he sort of tells the history of our understanding of chance and probabilities over a relatively long period. And In the 1900s in the U.S., at least the period that I was studying, which is basically 1840 to, say, 1910, there was this understanding that causal inquiries really could only be pattern-based. So the idea was, well, is this the type of thing that would happen, that we would expect to happen? And if it's the type of thing that we would expect to happen then we have sufficient information to say that there's a causal relationship here. In the paper, I describe it as a causal tendency theory, and that's what I advocate we should return to. And it's illustrated by a number of cases and treatises from that period. The most famous that people might remember from torts is the person who falls down a staircase, in a dark staircase. And so the question is, did she fall down the dark staircase because the visibility was so low and the staircase was a little dangerous, in which case there's negligence, or did she fall because of some other reason, in which case there wouldn't be negligence. And in the Louisiana case where they find that there was negligence and there was causation in the case, they say, look, when a stairwell is dark and people can't see, the kind of thing that would happen is that somebody would fall. And that's really sort of sums up their full consideration at that time of what the causal inquiry was. And you don't see in the treatises the emergence of but-for causation until somewhat later, which I found really surprising. That is, I'd assumed if I looked in the treatises from the late 1800s, I would find that the standard test would have been but-for causation. That's what I remember learning in law school. And it really wasn't the case 
And their main concern at that time was the problem of intervening causes. So what do I do when, you know, I have a defect in my carriage of some kind, and then also I go over a bump in the road that shouldn't have been there, and then my carriage falls apart or is, you know, damaged in some way? Is the initial defect to blame or the problem in the roadway to blame? There were a lot of lawsuits against municipalities arising out of failure to take care of their roads. And so that's the question they were most concerned with is the intervening cause problem, not so much the problem of, well, is there any causal relation here at all? And that second problem seems to have become much more of an issue in the 1920s. And that's where you see the first restatement, which adopts this but-for causation standard. Your proposal reminds me a lot of something that Margaret Berger proposed about 20 years ago, where she argued that, at least in toxic torts, that we should effectively abolish general causation inquiries and focus on the culpable conduct of the defendant and the the way she framed it, the breach of autonomy that is created when the defendant, for example, doesn't do sufficient testing and the, the wrongful activity is there. How does your theory tie in or square with hers? Yeah, so I love that paper. So I, on a sort of separate note, I think that in a lot of the toxic tort and drug and device cases that I've studied, that's what's in fact happening. So if you want a good explanation of when is liability found in these cases, that's probably the best explanation. But my proposal is really quite different because I'm not suggesting that we jettison the causation inquiry entirely, but rather that we leave in place the general causation inquiry. So we ask, does this drug device, medical device, toxin have a tendency that we can show epidemiologically to cause this harm. So in the case of tobacco, for example, does smoking have a tendency to cause lung cancer? And not ask the second question, which is what but for cause requires, did smoking cause this person's harm, which we frame as but for her decision to smoke would Mary have contracted lung cancer? or developed lung cancer. And that's the piece of the law that I would propose jettisoning, which we call specific causation, and replacing with just a pure tendency inquiry, which is the general causation inquiry. So I differ from her, I think, in that regard, though I suspect that if I reread her paper, she assumes that a causal tendency would be part of the inquiry. Otherwise, you would have a situation where simply bad conduct without any relation to the harm would be sufficient for liability. And I don't think that was what, if I recall correctly, she was advocating. But it's a very loose kind of standard. And then in the paper, what I suggest is that to the extent that you're unhappy with that standard because you don't like liability, the inquiry really should be what the restatement third calls scope of duty or what we sometimes call proximate or legal causation. That is that we may want to draw a circle around what conduct, what types of innovations are protected and what types of innovations result in liability. And that's a normative determination. And I'm happy to talk about that, but that's not what this paper is about. This paper is really to show in a very systemic way 
in an analytical way why the inquiry about specific causation is simply wrongheaded. It's it's not a logically possible inquiry that one could have, even if you thought it would be a good idea if you could have such an inquiry. It's kind of interesting. So Margaret's paper was entitled Eliminating General Causation and basically what we have here, you're proposing eliminating specific causation. And in some ways, I'm quite sympathetic to the intuition. The specific causation inquiry has always struck me as rather odd. It's not clear to me that anyone can really say very much about it in a lot of different cases. So as you've said, you can show that the drug has the capability of causing this particular disease. But when you try to decide which plaintiffs actually had the disease caused by the drug, you basically throw up your hands because there's no way to actually know that. Final question for you. What's next for this project? Are there future directions that you are planning to take the work or future directions that you'd like to see other people take? Yeah, so this is part of a really much bigger project about rethinking modern tort law. And so a piece of that was this paper on the specific causation, or rather counterfactual causation and why it's wrong. And then I have another piece called the knowledge remedy about what kind of remedies would be appropriate in situations where either we don't know the cause or where the defendant's conduct, and this goes back to the burger point that you made earlier, that where the defendant's conduct has actually resulted in us being uncertain about causal relationships and what duties defendants might owe to study and make determinations about the harms that their products may cause. And so I'm what I'm trying to do is rethink all of the pieces of that inquiry. So remedy, cause, and the, the next thing I want to do is really question the foundation of remedies in this space, which is the idea of the rightful position, which is the point of remedies is to put the person back where they would have been absent the wrong. And I think there's a lot of evidence that the rightful position is wrong. And so that's where this is, I think, going to go next. It's a bit of a radical proposition, so we'll see if it writes. Well, Lexi, thanks for taking the time to talk to us about chancy causation and the various problems that have been created by this but-for causation standard. Great having you on the show. Thanks so much. This was fabulous. As I said in the lead-up to the interview, the problem of probabilistic causation has fascinated me for some time. To me, whether a plaintiff can recover based on purely probabilistic evidence, most famously seen in the blue bus paradox, is a problem that seems to appear everywhere and that simply won't go away. Alexei's article on chancy causation and her proposal to abolish specific causation is, I think, a welcome foray into these persistent problems. As I mentioned to Alexei after our interview, specific causation has long struck me as a rather odd fit in toxic tort cases. Epidemiology can show us that a drug can cause the plaintiff's disease, but how can we show that a drug and not some background risk actually caused plaintiff's disease in a particular case? Typically, the answer is that we can't. 
We might bring in experts to say it did or to render their best guess, but it's largely the blue bus problem all over again. All we can really show is a probability. Yet, surely the answer can't be that since the plaintiff can't prove but-for causation with certainty, then none of the plaintiffs in these cases can ever win. Nor can we just say that all of the plaintiffs should win. Both of these results would have extremely bad effects on defendant incentives. They would also be factually wrong in the aggregate sense. We know that some plaintiffs in the group, not all, not none, some, some of the plaintiffs had their disease caused by the defendant. But we don't know and perhaps can't know exactly which ones. And as Alexi said, it's this problem of the indeterminate plaintiff that the law seems to have trouble with. I'm excited about what lies in store for Alexi's broader project. With Alexi on the case, I think it's safe to say that we're sure to have many more thought-provoking conversations about these issues, and I look forward to the various articles that are still to come. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program and the University of Arkansas School of Law. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Grace DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Francesca Rutherford, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join us again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.